Well, tomorrow evening around 12 midnight, you may hear horns, honks, screeches, yells, all sorts of New Year's Eve party paraphernalia around midnight. You know, we Americans are funny creatures. We complain all year long about the conditions, and then New Year's Eve we celebrate. I think that represents a hope that we have that somehow, no matter what has gone past, that the future would be different, that there might be a change. And we look back even at this year, and there's been some great changes that have occurred, that have continued to occur in places like Europe, the Soviet Union, but then... On the other hand, we have the threat of war that looms over us over in the Middle East. And so we're holding our breath to see what's going to happen in the next few weeks. Also, we want change that is personal. We look within us as well as looking at the outside world and all that's happening. And each of us knows that there are areas in our lives we want to change. There are certain things we want not to remain the same, but to be different. This Christmas we started our own tradition where we kind of celebrated the New Year's at Christmas time and that is Christmas Eve we took three old lunch bags that were kind of wadded up, wrote our names on each of them and wrote something that we wanted God to change. And we told our son, you know, we're going to put these three bags by the fireplace and instead of stockings, these three bags represent our old hearts, something we want the Lord to change, something we want to give over to Him. And we said, you know, Nathan, it's just like the Lord, that whenever we give him something old, he replaces it with something better. Nathan woke up the next day, and lo and behold, we had put three beautifully colored bags out there to represent that we want personal change and we want the Lord to accomplish it. We do that every year at New Year's. In fact, the Italians have an interesting kind of a tradition, and that is every New Year's Eve, they take some object that represents some sin or failure, Like it could be a spittoon for one person who wants to give up chewing tobacco. It could represent uh, maybe a broken chair that represented anger when he broke it through the door of the kitchen a few months ago. They take that object, they throw it out on the streets with singing and dancing. Representing that I'm throwing something old away and I want something new in return. But it seems to me that the real issue rather than these yearly kind of celebrations, is an evaluation of how we are doing and how we are growing in light of the task God has given to us. In light of the work and the ministry God has given to each one of us to perform and to fulfill. Are we fulfilling the task? Oswald Chambers said, The best measure of spiritual life is not ecstasies, but obedience. You might rephrase that. It's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk once you come down. And so it is with a New Year's resolution. Joshua, in chapter 13, is 90 years old. He's a veteran general of the Israeli army. He's been conquering the land, and yet the Lord approaches him about fulfilling the task that is yet not completed at this point. They haven't possessed it all. And so in verse 1, we look at the evaluation in God's presence. It says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. (laughs) And there remains very much land to be possessed. When I first read that, I had the same reaction. It cracked me up. And what what impresses me 
first of all, is God's blunt approach. Goes up to a 90-year-old man and says, You're old. Maybe for a tree you're young, but for a man you're old. You're 90 years old. Man, you're advanced in years and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. Nobody likes to face that. It seems too blunt. But we're all getting older. Uh, No amount of facelifts or tummy tucks will change that. We're getting older. The sand of the hourglass is running out. And you are younger today than you ever will be. And all of us are traveling the same road at the same time. We're all getting older. But he says there's a lot of land yet that you haven't taken. The reason God said this to Joshua is not to discourage him. He wasn't trying to say, Joshua, it's time for the rest home, man. You've been working too long. Just hang out now. He was doing this not to put him away, but to bring him out of retirement if there would be that feeling within Joshua to quit. He was trying to show him that, hey, it's not time to quit. It's time to move on, to fulfill your calling or to finish the task. This is an honest evaluation before the Lord. Who you are, what you have been doing in light of the presence of God and the task that God has given you to perform. Now, New Year's is an excellent time for doing that. New Year's is the time that for some reason we have set aside to stop and evaluate the past and then look at the future. What we could be doing or what we should be doing. We call them resolutions. Some habit that we want to drop. Some behavioral pattern that we want to cease. Oh, we want to lose weight. We're determined that we're going to read our Bibles all the way through this year and not stop at Leviticus. We're going to carry it through. We're going to treat our husbands or our wives or our children the way God wants us to. We make those little promises or resolutions and we're determined that we're going to carry them out in the new year. And as noble as that may be, it often ends in frustration because we try to perform them without evaluating ourselves in the light of the task God has given us to do. Therefore, we don't know our priorities. And secondly, we can be frustrated because we try to do it in the energy of the flesh without the empowering of God. We're just determined to do it. And then when we fail, it's very frustrating. I heard a story of a man whose marriage was crumbling. He said he was falling out of love with his wife, and it seemed like his wife had already lost her love for him. And he went to a counselor, and the counselor said, you need to really regain your first love. And you need to start treating your wife like she's a princess. And so weeks went by and he called up his friend and he said, i got to tell you what happened. In the past, I would always come home after a hard day of work, sweaty, grimy, come in the back door, go to the refrigerator, get a drink, sit down and watch television. But then I decided to take your advice. Before I left work one day, I shaved, put on cologne, put on a new shirt, Decided I would stop at the florist shop before I came home. I came home with a big bouquet of flowers. And instead of going to the back door, I rang the doorbell, the front door. My wife came to the door. She took one look at me and she cried. He said, honey, what's wrong? He said, it's been a horrible day. Billy broke his arm. I had to take him to the hospital. No sooner did I get back from the hospital, your mother called and said she's going to stay with us for three weeks. 
And so I went to wash the clothes. The washing machine broke. There's water all over the floor. And now you come home drunk. It backfired on him. We want things to be so different. But what is important in verse 1, in this evaluation, is that we make it before the Lord, in God's presence. Not just, here's my inventory of my life. Here's some things I want to change. But no, in the presence of God, what am I not doing that God would have me to be doing? Making an evaluation in the presence of the Lord, in a time of prayer, according to His task that He's assigned to us. Also, I think it's important that we we stop looking at life just in terms of this year versus last year and next year. But we get the big picture. And we look at our life as a lifetime. And we ask questions like, how old am I? How long have I known the Lord now? In the time that I have known the Lord, how much time have I spent investing in His kingdom? How much time have I spent for myself? Is there land that is still unoccupied with enemies in it that God wants me to take but I haven't taken? Asking those kinds of questions, getting the big picture and doing it before the Lord. Dr. C.C. Albertson said, It might be wise for us to take a little inventory of our resources as to time and review our habits of using it. There are 186 hours in each week. 56 of those hours we spend sleeping. 48 we devote to working. That leaves 64 hours, 12 of which we assign to daily meals, which allows 30 minutes for each meal and an hour and a half extra to promote good digestion. We then have 52 hours left of conscious, active life to devote to any purpose that we're inclined. The question is, how do you spend it? Well, I took his little statistic of 168 hours a week, and that means that we have 8,064 hours a year. If you live the average lifetime, you will live 565,000 hours. Where do all those hours go? Do you spend them or do you invest them that extra time? Now, I know that time is elusive. It can be wasted quite easily. I found in my file something I cut out of USA Today that when I read, it just it brought a smile and a disappointment to my heart. It talked about wasting time. USA Snapshot, wasting time, unnecessary time spent by executives. The average executive is on hold 60 hours a year. Hold, please. Reading and writing unnecessary memos, 128 hours a year. All those poor trees. And unnecessary meetings, 288 hours a year. At the end of the year, we think, where did it go? But more than that, Lord, the time that you have given me, the hours that you have given me this year, the task that you have assigned me to do in a lifetime. How old am I and what have I done in relation to being obedient to that task that you've given me to do? Why is that important? It's important because one day you're going to say just exactly what Paul the Apostle said before he died. He said, the time of my departure is at hand. And you will either say like Paul, I have finished the race, I fought the fight. Or you'll say, 
Boy, I left a lot of land unconquered. And I live and I die now in regret. And there are many people in their rocking chairs of regret because they didn't fulfill the task that God gave them to fulfill. Paul the Apostle said in the book of Acts, the motivation for him going to Jerusalem and even facing death death, was, if only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now for just a moment, consider Joshua, 90 years old, and think of all that he has already accomplished. First of all, they went across the Jordan River. Remember how that happened? The waters opened up for them. When they were carrying the ark across and their feet touched it, the waters opened up. Do you, can you imagine how they felt seeing that kind of a miracle? Just going, whoa. The water just opened up for us. Nothing can stop us. And how about going to Jericho and tooting a few horns and watching the walls of Jericho collapse and their enemies subdued before them? Can you imagine how they felt? What an accomplishment that God did. And then what about the time that God let the day be lengthened so that the battle could be finished? Can you imagine how they felt on that day? After all that they have done in conquering this land and all of the miracles, it would be very easy for Joshua and the children of Israel to rest on the laurels of their past accomplishments. Hey, we've seen all these miracles, the will of God, the work of God. We've seen the land subdued. You wouldn't believe what I've been through. And they could have swapped testimony stories meeting after meeting. But the truth was, although they accomplished much, there was much undone. They had conquered the land, but not all of it. And God won't let them alone. Hey, uh, Joshua, you're an old fella. Kind of an old geezer. But you haven't finished the task. I told you to subdue all the land. There's still a lot of it that is left remaining. And I want you to finish the job. Not only was there a lot to do, there was a lot of blessing they had not received. And that's really the issue, I think, with God. He's saying, in effect, I have so much for you guys, and you're content with so little. I've given you the whole land, and you just kind of take this little bit. Why? You know that Israel never took all that God gave them. God outlined for them exactly 300 thousand square miles of territory and Israel at her peak of glory only claimed 30,000 square miles a tenth of all that God had for them. I wonder if that's not a foreshadowing of today I wonder if we as Christians take about a tenth a tithe of all that God really has in store for us to accomplish and to receive I'm not speaking about monetary blessing you know what I'm talking about of all that God would use us for and bless us with, only taking a tent, being content to live with far less than what God intended for us. I have a little book on my shelf called simply 12 Sermons on Prayer by Charles Spurgeon. And he speaks about this attitude in many Christians when he says, most Christians, as to the river of experience, are only up to the ankles. Some others have waited till the stream is up to their knees. A few find it breast high, and but a few, oh, how few, find it a river to swim in, the bottom of which they cannot touch. 
I heard a story of an English fellow who moved to America. His uncle owned a $5 million estate and he died in England and left his nephew as heir to the estate. But the nephew didn't know about it, so Scotland Yard went on a search so that they might bestow the $5 million estate to this nephew. And so they found his last address in Chicago and they looked for him and they couldn't find him. And they searched and searched and they never found him until finally he turned up one day dead at the entranceway to a cheap hotel. He couldn't even afford 25 cents to pay the nightly rent. Here he was, heir to a $5 million estate, and he died as a bum in a doorway because he didn't know all that was for him. And in not knowing it and in not appropriating it, he never enjoyed it. He had far less than really what was his. And so, first of all, to complete the task that God has set for each one of us. It takes an evaluation in the presence of God. How old am I? How long have I known the Lord? What have I been doing? How have I been investing in the kingdom work? And is there still a lot for me to go? I remind you of a scripture in Ephesians that probably you know very well. We are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. And we have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance that we would walk in them. Do we know what they are? Are we walking in them? And how much is left? So first of all, there's an evaluation in God's presence. Second of all, there's a cooperation with God's power. If you go down the next few verses, it's basically a geographical outline of what they need to possess. This is the land that remains, all the territory of the Philistines, the Geshurites from Shehor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron northwards, which is counted as Canaanite. Five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, Ashdodites, Ashkelonites, the Gidites, all the rest of the ites that are in these things until you get to verse 6. All the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon, as far as the brook Misrepoth, and all the Sidonians, them I will... Now listen to this. He outlines it. Notice what he says. Them I will drive out from before the children of Israel. Only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. There's two parts there. There's God's part and then their part. So first of all, Joshua, you're old. There's a lot of work to be done in evaluation in God's presence. Then there's a cooperation with God's power. This is what I will do with my power, Joshua. But there's a part for you too. You just can't sit back on the land and get a suntan. You've got to divide that which I have given to you. There must be a cooperation. This is what I will do with my power, but you must cooperate with my power. And you must conquer the land. Now, I think that beautifully foreshadows our inheritance today. It's a beautiful picture of it. There's God's part, and then there's our part. Unfortunately, uh, theologians get into arguments over such points as this, and it seems that they like to take extremes. It's all God's part, and you don't do anything. It's all God. Then there's the other extreme, it's all man, you must work and labor and strive hard. 
and they get into arguments because they don't see eye to eye. The truth of the matter is that both of those things are true. There is a cooperation of God's part and then an obedience of man, the responsibility of man to do his part. Cooperation. There are scriptures like this. Paul said, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, you can't boast of anything as being on your own. God gave it to you. You just received it all. But then there's other scriptures on the other hand, like make every effort to enter into the narrow gate. Strive to enter into the rest that God has given to you. Both of those are equally true. Now, let me clarify something. We do not cooperate with any effort of our own when it comes to redemption. We can't help save ourselves. We can't work a little bit to show that we're good enough to be saved. God will not divide the honors when it comes to salvation or redemption. It's all a work of grace. It's a free gift. But when it comes to growth in grace and in knowledge and in wisdom and in effectiveness, when it comes to our maturity, you betcha there's a cooperation. A lot of us may be sitting on the land but never enjoying it. And we might live like that bum in the doorway with a huge estate, but not appropriating any of it. I want you to turn to a couple scriptures. First of all, Second Peter, chapter 1. Second Peter, chapter 1. I'm simply going to turn to a couple scriptures to amplify this cooperation. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he basically calls us to this cooperation. Let's just read it all together. Beginning in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So far, God's doing it all. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. So far, God's done it all. He's given us power, glory, virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So far, so good. God's given us all the power that we need, all the promises that we need to grow. In other words, he's saying you can grow as much as you want to grow. You can be as spiritually mature as you yourself will allow yourself to become because God's given all that you need for life and godliness. All the power, all the promises. It just takes appropriation. So whenever you see a person who says, well, I just, I'm not growing. Well, whose fault is that? can't blame God for that. He's promised that you will have all the equipment necessary to pull it off. All the power, all the promises. Notice verse 4 before we move on. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Having escaped, that's just the start. Having escaped, that's when you first accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. You escaped the corruption that is in the world. But that's just the beginning. You shouldn't just throw up your arms and say, it's over, I'm saved. 
No, that's the equivalent of the children of Israel being saved from the corruption of Egypt and being taken into the land of Canaan. Oh, they're there. It's a free gift. The walls of Jericho came down because God pushed them down. They didn't earn Canaan. It's theirs. They've escaped the corruption of Egypt, of the world. But now they have to conquer some of that land. They have to cooperate with God. I know that you have all seen people who have not developed physically. Some genetic defect have caused maybe an arm to grow larger or one arm to not develop or certain parts of their physical body not to mature. And you've probably seen people who haven't grown and matured totally with their mental capacities. They're not totally mature mentally. And we say, that's a shame. Because it was God's intended purpose that every human being, it seems, in the genetic code, grow to be whole. What a shame that this person hasn't achieved that. But it's just as sad, in fact, I think it's much sadder when you see a person spiritually who hasn't matured who has stayed a spiritual infant after many, many years, they're having the land, but they're not appropriating all that God has. They've simply escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So it's possible to escape and yet to stagnate. I'm speaking about people who know they've been forgiven. Christian men and women who've experienced the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ in their life, and yet they still have Deeply ingrained sinful patterns of behavior that have a grip and control over their life. There's never a real, real transformation of character. They're just forgiven. And they're just sitting on this little piece of land. And that's it. And they're going to go all the way through life on this little piece of land and die. And praise the Lord, they'll go to heaven. Perhaps the angels will go, we were kind of taking a bet on you. We didn't know if you'd make it. But at least they'll get there. But why get there that way? Why not appropriate all that God has given to us? Look at verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, better translation, putting every bit of effort you can into it. Add to your faith, better translated, lavishly supply to your faith. Virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, and on and on the list goes. In other words, God has given you all that you need to grow. Now here's a list of ingredients to supercharge your faith. Add these things with all diligence, with all effort. Cooperate with God's work in your life. You know, spiritual growth is a little bit different than physical growth. Physical growth, by and large, is automatic. Feed the kid, clothe the kid, love the kid, he'll grow up. Spiritual growth is not like that. It's not automatic. You can stop it at any time along that line. And all of us have seen older believers who are in diapers spiritually. And they still need their diapers changed. And we've all seen young Christians who've been at it just maybe a couple years and they're so mature. Why? Cooperation. They've added... To their faith. They've not been content with any small portion of the land. They want it all. They want all that God would have for them. Now, one more portion of scripture I want you to turn to, and that's Philippians chapter 2. So, Philip to Philippians chapter 2.
I want you to zero in on verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Unfortunately, people stop at that verse and they get all extreme in one direction. It's all man's work. The next beautiful verse, and by the way, you can't read the next verse by itself either. For it is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. It's not a contradiction. It's simply showing two parts of a cooperative effort. God works it in you, work it out. God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, verse 13 is the power source. And verse 12 is the human responsibility. Is that it is God who works, literally energizes you. God gives you the power and the energy to pull off taking all of the land. He works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. You must first experience the power of change within your life before you can do anything for God. You know, one of the greatest days that any person can come to is when they finally believe what Jesus said. Without me, you can do nothing. And you finally come to that day. It's like, oh, the greatest day of your life. Lord, I need your power. And I'm plugged into your energy. One of the first things people do when they get an apartment or a new house is turn on the electricity. Kind of foolish to have all of the best appliances, the greatest dishwasher, the nuclear kind of uh, oven and microwave, everything, and no electricity. Well, I've got all the appliances. None of them work, but I got them. Well, turn on the juice, then you have power to operate all of those appliances. God has given you the appliances and the power, but you've got to plug it in. All that pertains to life and godliness, God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There was once a, an American and a British fella. The Britisher was visiting his American friend. They were in New York. The American said, I'm going to show you the greatest unused power in the world. Took him to Niagara Falls. Said, there is the greatest unused power in the world. The British fella, a Christian, said, no, no. The Holy Spirit of the living God is the greatest unused power in the world. People don't tap into it. God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I've met so many frustrated people who are Christians who come and they say, I want to serve God so badly. With all my heart, my greatest desire is to serve God. But I've just got this desire. I haven't seen the Lord work that out yet. And inside, I smile with delight because I know that he couldn't even have that desire unless God worked it in him. Before you were saved, did you have a desire to serve God? Were you chomping at the bit to lead a Bible study? But you come to know the Lord and all of a sudden you have this desire to serve Him. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is working within you to will so that God can do. When a Christian first comes to meet Christ, the very first time he walks the aisle or he prays that prayer and says, Lord, be my Savior. There's not much that has changed practically in his life from that moment and just a few minutes ago. He still has doubts, probably. He still has bad patterns of behavior. Judicially, he's saved before God, but practically, he still has all that stuff he's come with. But as time goes on, he starts realizing, hey, I've got sinful 
patterns of behavior that don't please God. I got to get rid of this cussing. I got to get rid of this behavior. Why does that happen? Because the Holy Spirit is working inside, energizing him. And then prompting him to do God's will. And he does that so that when you do God's will, you'll enjoy doing it. To will and then to do of his good pleasure. I want you to look at something in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the second part. And what that means, work out, doesn't mean work to be saved. It means carry something to the ultimate conclusion. It's like saying, here is a math student who has worked out the problem. It means he's solved it. He's taken it and he's worked it to its ultimate end. Well, what is the ultimate end and the ultimate goal of the Christian? It's to be like Jesus. It's the ultimate goal on earth is to be like Christ. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it or carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That's God's goal in you. Now you carry it out and cooperate with him. Don't stop halfway to its completed end. Any extreme of those two truths are wrong. And I found something interesting, that there are a great number of believers who like to camp in those extremes. You give a sermon all about the love of God, and there's a group of people who just say, oh, that's the best. And then you give another sermon about human responsibility and obedience, and it's a little meaty, it's a little edgy, it's a little full of conviction. And there's a group of people who say, no, I like that kind of a sermon. You keep preaching those hard kind of sermons. But the truth is, God gives you the energy. It's God's love. It's God's power. But you've got to meet and grab his hand and cooperate with him or you won't grow one iota. You'll have a big portion of free land, but you never enjoy it. You won't take all of the inheritance God has given to you. I want to kind of conclude with one thought. It's something that has probably uh, stumbled a few of you as you've read it. Back in verse 12 of Philippians 2 again. It says, work out your own salvation, but notice how. With fear and trembling. And people get a little bit uh, upset at that verse. What does that mean? With fear and trembling. Does that mean I'm supposed to be scared and afraid of God? No. What that means is you're not afraid of God, but you are fearful that you would displease your master because you love him. And you're afraid that you'd fall short of all that God has intended, thus displeasing him. And that's the kind of respect that you have for the Lord. And the fear is that you might not please the Lord who bought you. You know, as a kid, there were certain things I would not do because I knew if my parents found out, it would break their heart. And that was enough impetus for me not to do them. And there are certain things as a Christian, if I do, I know it will break the heart of my Jesus. Not just, well, if I get caught, what will happen? But what would the Lord think? with fear and trembling. And so, with Joshua, there was an evaluation in God's presence. Joshua, you're an old man. But you got a lot of work to do. And secondly, there was a cooperation with God's power. I'll drive them out with my energy and my power, but Josh, you got to cooperate. you got to divvy up the land. you got to do your part of conquering it. You can't just kick back. 
You must cooperate in growth. And we probably should add a third, just in closing. And that is, there was a determination for God's purpose. I want you to look at one verse and we'll close our Bibles with this. Look at Joshua chapter 14 now. These are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. The inheritance was by lot, and it lists them now. And what that is saying is that Joshua was determined to do God's will after God approached him. There was that evaluation, there was that cooperation, then there was a determination. I'm going to do it. By God's strength, I'm going to do it. And he did it. Now this morning you may be young. You may be middle-aged. You may be old, and some of you may not know which category you even fit in. But there's one fact that's true for every person in the hearing of this message, and that is, for all of us, there's still some land and some territory to be taken, isn't there? You may be a spiritual giant or a spiritual fledgling, but all of us haven't been totally conformed into the image of Jesus Christ yet, have we? So none of us can rest on the laurels of our past accomplishments. Well, you know, I've served the Lord this long. So what? There's still more land, more character building, more conforming to be done for every one of us, isn't there? And that's why a new year poses such great possibilities. Oh, the things that God can do through me this year. But I think we ought to be as Paul the Apostle, standing at the threshold of a new year and saying this, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because the truth of the matter is, one day we're all going to be old. If the Lord doesn't come back before that time. And we're all going to be at a point where it could be too late. And we're going to be able to say, I finished the race. Or we're going to say, oh, I wish I would have run that race. Oh, I wish I would have taken the territory that God gave to me, but I didn't do it. And then we'll die like that bum in the doorway. Sitting on the land, but really not possessing it. Now, it's a new year. And if you're an unbeliever, the new year should be a time of new birth. Because as you evaluate yourself in the light of God's presence, you recognize you haven't even entered into the inheritance at all yet. You're on the other side of the Jordan saying, boy, it looks like a neat land. I'd like to be in there. But you've got to cross over. And God will do the same for you that He did to the children of Israel. He'll make it easy for you. He'll open up the waters. He'll bring you into the land. He'll give it to you as a free gift. But then you have to take it. This morning you must appropriate salvation. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's the day to seize it and to take it and then let God grow you and blossom you. If you are a believer, this new year is a new start. A time to say, God, as I evaluate my life, how old I am, what I've done, I recognize that I have just a little bit of land. I want more. I want all that you have for me. I want to be used by you. Make me effective. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the short time that we have spent in your word today. 
making an evaluation in your presence, deciding that there will be a cooperation with your power, and also a determination for your purpose. I pray, Lord, that this new year would be a brand new start for every single one of us, that we would take the next couple of days as we launch into a brand new period called 1991, that it would be a marked difference for us. Really, Lord, we pray that. We really want it to be more than a resolution, a transformation. Father, I would pray for those who haven't made a commitment to Jesus Christ personally. And they want to know that their sins can be forgiven. And that they can have a new start. Not just a new year, a new life, a new eternity. And Father, we pray that at this moment, as your Holy Spirit would tug at their hearts, convincing them that there needs to be more, that they would respond to your grace. 